Last week we looked at the the subject of words and how the letters um, the letters come into focus in the in the higher world, the higher worlds, and how they come down into words which have a which have a meaning, and that's how we. That is the meaning, the, the medium, if you like, of connection between between worlds. Right, the Ramchal, as I we read, uh, we, we saw the saw the the language inside there. He says that the letters are the. It's very hard to find the English equivalent, but the letters are the. Each one's a focus of energy, I suppose, which represents a absorbs, if you like. Or is the the focus of projection of higher forces, higher emanations, lights as he calls them, the higher lights, they come down into the letters, and the letters are then forming words. You'll remember that we said that the Hebrew word for a word is a teva, one of the words for a word. Teva means a an ark or a container as it were. And you you remember, I'm, I'm sure that we pointed out that the Zohar says that the ark, Noah's ark, Tevaz Noach, the ark in which he survived, as it were, was really the word. <coughs> that means that the medium of, of survival or the medium of, let's say, staying afloat above the chaotic water is always the energy of dissolution, of Michuitsura, that means the... Um, Dissolving of form, that's what water is. <coughs> the world comes out of the formless state, which is water, <coughs> and this, the flood returns it to that state. It's the word, <coughs> which is not formless, <coughs> but which is, has specific form, <coughs> which is the medium which floats above that chaos, a void. And that's how one generation of the world's history is transmitted to the next, even though there's a node at which that process all, almost ends. There's another facet to, to this discussion that perhaps we can look at this evening. <coughs> the next step, if you like. <coughs> you remember one of the themes that we, we spoke about last week <coughs> was the fact that we said that the notion of an oral law, Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, has its beginnings, the notion has its beginnings all the way back as far as you go back. But the, the point in which we picked it up last week, I hope you, you recall, was that we said that the work that Abraham did, Avram Avinu did, was that he was able to hear a message or hear the correct projection of a world that supervisionally did not project its message. In other words, he lived at a generation when people... Right, let's put our heads back into that and see if we can take it further. He lived in a generation when people all had the wrong, well, the same message and all had the wrong message. Right? The Dorha Palaga, as it's called, the, the generation of the dispersal, that generation of human history, derived from the survivors of the flood. They were those who had one universal language. They were called Dvarim Achadim. Yeah? Dvarim Achadim. That means they had words that were, that were one. That means they had the universal, they had the language of prophetic clarity, the language that itself is creative, no less than that. And they, they use that language to perceive 
exactly the opposite of what it should transmit. They used it to, to, to in, the intention was to manipulate the world into their own, take control of it and use it for their own, for their own ends. There was one human being, just one, not in our story, Avram Avinu Abraham, who heard the world's correct message, even though the superficial projection of the world is not that. The world, we said, is called an Alma de Shikra, right? It's called a world of lies. It, does not, it doesn't mean that the world isn't always projecting itself truthfully. It means that intrinsically the world lies. The Hebrew word for a world is olam. You know, let, let's backtrack for a moment. We've said here many times, and I'm sure we all now masters of the idea, in fact, I'm sure you only come here for very brief revision purposes, that the Hebrew word means what it says because it actually creates what it says. Right? That's familiar to us by now. The word means what it says, not because we, we have agreed by convention that it means that, but because it genetically, as it were, creates it, gives rise to the concept, gives rise to the concept. That's why the Hebrew word davar, meaning a word, another word for a word, is also the word for a thing. Because anything in the world, any object or anything, anything in the world, is nothing other than a projection of the word that brings it into existence. <coughs> and therefore, when you examine the word, you get to the root of the thing. Because the word is the genes that create the thing. If the word davar in Hebrew means a word and a thing, and we therefore conclude that those two must be vested in the same root concept, the word olam in Hebrew is very interesting because it means to hide. The word olam, which means a world, the world, which you would think, you would think means that which is visible. After all, the world is that which is manifest. And the Hebrew word he'elem means to hide. Why is the world named for the same, for the concept of hiddenness. After all, the world is the external projection in the Kabbalistic notion. The world is the external projection. The world is the gilui. The world is the gilui. It is the revelation of what Hashem is. On the contrary, the world reveals. <coughs> Just to understand this a bit more deeply. You know, the, the deepest notion we have in, this, in, the, in the process of formation or creation of the world is called yesh me'ayin. Right? Something from nothing. Something from nothing, right? The most basic notion of all Jewish, you know, cosmology, cosmogony, creation itself, is, is creation ex nihilo, something from nothing, right? That's called yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. The truth is that it's not something from nothing. If anything, if you, if you, if you, if you could put an accurate description to that process, you'd have to say that it's nothing from something. Because the notion that we have of the world, and certainly all the deeper references, all the deeper sources say, is that the world is a... <coughs> that means that Hashem Himself, before He produces the world, is everything. And our notion is that when the world is created, there isn't anything other than an emanation of His total existence, His oneness. So how can you say the world came from nothing? The world didn't come from nothing. The world came from an, the biggest everything that you could begin to conceive. On the contrary, the world is a shrinking down of what was there before, an extreme constriction of the totality that was there before. We should call it, if anything, a nothing from a something. The more accurate description of the process of creation is that the world is the production of almost infinitely less than there was there before. So it would be almost perfectly accurate to say that it's nothing from something. Are we so far together? So why do we say that the world is not... We say the world is something from nothing. Yesh me'ayin. It's completely inaccurate. 
But of course, the explanation is this. We don't mean to say that the world is something where there was nothing before. On the contrary, the world is almost nothing where there was everything before. What we mean is that while everything was present, there was nothing revealed. There was no gilui, there was no revelation. The whole point of the world is to reveal itself. And therefore, the world was before. What was before the world wasn't everything, but there was no one to see it. There was no revelation, no gilui. And therefore we say the world, Yatsami Helem Legilui, came from hiddenness to revelation. Right? The reason we say it's something from nothing, because when we judge it in human terms, we're talking about the world as it reveals itself. There was no revelation before. And now there's a revealed world. So far, so good? Yeah. And therefore we say something from nothing. We mean that it came from... Let me share with you a beautiful insight into this. Do you know the Hebrew word for existence? When you want to talk about the existence of something, what do you say in Hebrew? The, the Torah language for the sense of existence is mitziut. Mitziut. It's a, it's a mitzias. It, it has a reality. Mitziut. That word, incidentally, you do not find in Torah sources. Do you know that? The word mitziut, meaning reality, is not a biblical, it's not a scriptural word. It's a coinage of the rabbis. The rabbis coined the word mitzias for existence. It's a word you find re- referenced in the Rishonim. They use the word mitzias. The word mitziut in Hebrew means to come out. Mitziut is based on the root yatsa. In Hebrew, means to go out. In what sense is existence a going out? And the answer is, It came out from its inner hidden core into its exposed and visible level. And therefore we call it mitzias. It means it is, it comes out. It's discovered. You know what a mitzia is? What's a mitzia? Let's think about it for a moment. Don't think about our Hebrew. Now we all fluent in Hebrew. We all, master, we all have it mastered. You're all getting there? Can't study Torah without Hebrew, right? What's a mitzia? When you find something, we call it a mitzia, something you found, right? Matzah is the root meaning to find something. What is the connection? And by the way, the word a mitzia usually means something that was unexpectedly found. Right? Unexpected. You stumbled across it unexpectedly, you call it a mitzia, right? Something that you found. That's why we say, Yagati umatsati. I made an effort and I found. So all our sources point out that those two words don't really follow. Yagati means I strove and I made an effort. The word that follows should be pa'alti or hisagti. In other words, I achieved, I, I built, I, I, I managed, I succeeded. But to say Yagati umatsati is completely, it's a non, sequi, a non sequitur. Because Yagati means to make an effort. Metsia is the word you always use when you mean something that was completely unexpected. Surprise. But if you made an effort for this thing, why do you describe the result as a surprise? This is where you are heading. But of course the beautiful Torah sensitivity here is that we always appreciate that our work is necessary, but the result is a gift. I mean, the depth of that, of course, means that the result transcends the work. That's the importance of it, of course. It isn't only humility. The, the, the character-building element of it is to know that you work hard to earn a living, and when the result comes, it's a gift. But the, this, that's, the, that's the character level. But the spiritual level is that the gift transcends the work you're able to put in when you strive to understand something. Let's not talk about the physical. When you learn Torah, you strive to understand something. So you make a tremendous, prodigious effort to understand it, and the flash of inspiration, the gilui, the revelation of the, of the result, you know is a gift from someplace else. If you have any humility at all, and any awareness of your own inner process, you know that when you achieve, when you give, in the creative arts, it's called an inspiration. So how do you do an inspiration? You can't do it. What you do is walk around feeling terrible because you don't have the inspiration. That's what you do. And then when you suddenly get it, you say, I, you say, I did it. 
after that, you didn't do it, you walked around feeling miserable, that's all, because you knew you didn't have it. And then, but the effort of laboring in wanting to have it, and clearing away all the distracting elements, is what makes the gift possible to be given, so it's called a mitzia. But essentially the word mitzia means something that's unexpected. So why is something that's found that's unexpected, what does it have to do with going out? But can you hear the, can you hear the answer? It's the same thing. It went out from a hidden, before, previously it was hidden, and it came into your realm of discovery, it has now come out from the hidden into the revealed. And therefore a found object, unexpectedly found, we call a mitzir. Mitzirut, existence means the manifest dimension of the world that comes out from its hidden, non-revealed state into the revealed state. If all this is true, why is the word for a world, or love, which means to hide? But I should be becoming, this, this, this hiddenness should be becoming a little bit more revealed now, I hope. Doubtful. The word olam, the reason that we call the world a hiding, is because it hides the reality that lies behind it. By means of incredible... This is the paradox of the creation, in that the only way you can reveal this thing is by hiding. If all is suffused with light, you can't see anything. If you shine a light where there is light, it's the expression in the Talmud is shraga betiaramahani. There's Aramaic expression, shraga, but shraga means a flame in Aramaic. A flame at noon, a candle at noon, what does it help? You have a... You have a candle in the darkness, a small candle, a tremendous revelation in the darkness. And therefore the process of creation, although there are very deep things which have their own jargon and their own language in the literature, but the, the process of the world is really a restraining or a darkness, so that the little that remains, the almost infinitesimally little that remains, compared to the infinite oneness that was there before, can have a revelation. And therefore this aspect of the process of the world we call helem, or lam, which means the process of hiding, and of course the paradox is that very act of hiding is what reveals, yes, it's putting off the light that makes the candle visible. Clear? So, the words, the words do this. The words contain within themselves this process of a, of a condensing which makes, yes, which makes things revealed. The world itself is doing this, but the world is a hiding. And therefore, essentially, the world is called an Almada Shikra. The world is called a world of lies because it essentially is hiding what it intends to reveal. The only way to resolve, uh, the only way to resolve this paradox is if you look at it correctly. Right? Do you look at the darkness and say things are dark? Or do you look at the darkness and say that there was an act of darkness here to reveal the light? Right. Do you look at the human face? Do you see it as an externality? Or do you see it as an avenue, a tool of internality? Incidentally, the, human, the, word, the word for a face in Hebrew, again, I don't think other languages are like this. In Hebrew, the word for a face is panim. The same word in Hebrew means panim. Is the, same, the same word in Hebrew means outside and inside. The same word, right? In another language, that would sound like the same word, the same root, yeah, pan. The root of the word, pan means a facet or a face. Panim is the face, right? And pnim is the internality. Why? Because the face is where the inside is revealed. The facet is where the jewel comes to, yeah, where it's reflection, where it's, and the face is the most, that's why the face doesn't have clothes. Right? The body, the, the halachic concept of clothing for every part of the body, except for the hands and the face. There aren't any garments that attach to the hands and the face. Hands is its own discussion of what method of expression and what depth of expression lies in the hands. But the face, 
In fact, the, our sources say that the only difference between man and animal is one is the erect posture that also needs discussion, and the other is called ziv hapanim. Ziv hapanim, the glow on the face. That a human face, especially a human, an, an enlightened human face, right, in, in the true sense, person of das, person of wisdom, person who's developed some, some, some knowledge and especially some refinement, the face has a glow that's called ziv. There's a certain... You couldn't measure it with a, you know, the, with a light meter. It's not something that you can... But with human sensitivity, you look at a human face, is different than the face of an animal, even a primate, even, a, even an animal that looks superficially similar, because there's a certain emanation that the face has which reveals the internality. The difference between a live face and the face just after death, it's a big difference, big difference. Big difference. You don't have to be an expert to see it. Even though there's been no molecular change, there's been no, there's been no technical change. That's why the Kabbalistic sources always describe the eyes as projecting. We used, to, we used to think of the eyes as receiving. We think of them as receptors. But our literature talks about the eyes as projectors. It's in the sense, it's in the sense that the panemia, the panemia, the eyes, of course, are the, the essence of the person. In this sense. So, the world, by virtue of its existence as a world, is a hiding. And therefore, when you look at the world, the wrong message is the one that impresses itself on you. The world specifically projects the wrong message. It's not possible for the world to project the... the, If the world projected the right message, it wouldn't be a world. It wouldn't be olam. It wouldn't be a hiding. There'd be so much light, you wouldn't see any... Yeah, you couldn't see a candle. In fact, you wouldn't be there to see the candle because you'd be part of the light. And therefore, the only way to deal with the world correctly is to see that what it says at face value, what you appreciate at first glance, is wrong. And that depth of understanding is what we call the oral law. I hope it was clear last week, and if it wasn't, I hope I made it a little clearer this evening, is that that incredible individual that we call Avram Avinu, that father figure, who was the father of the Jewish people and the father of the world spiritually, the world was created for him. Behibaram, in its being created, is the letters Avraham. But Eile told us Hashemai invites Behibaram. These are the generations of the creation of heaven and earth in their being created. The word Behibaram in Hebrew spells Avraham. <coughs> and therefore, and therefore, he is the one who brings to the world the power of perceiving that what it says superficially is not what it means, even though the whole history, the whole generation, that whole generation within history perceives it one way, he has the courage and the perception, perception and the courage, to be able to see and declare that it's not what it says at face value. Now this process of oral law, let's try and think it through further. It comes to expression at a particular time in history specifically. That means we can trace it back to the very beginning, we can trace it back all the way to Adam and his perception of what he was told. He was told one thing which he regarded, as we would say, as the written law, explicit law, the prophetic law, and then what he heard within the words, which we would call the oral tradition. In fact, he concluded that they were opposite to each other. He concluded that the instruction was not to eat, but the inner meaning of it was that he really should. Surprising? Well, first glance. First glance is not what it means. What it really means is the depth of understanding behind the first glance. We can trace this idea all the way back. But the, the place we trace it to in the passage that we're reading now, we said that Abraham, Abraham is the one who comes to the world, brings to the world that perception 
which is that the face value is not correct. There's a phase in history where this takes on a new meaning. And that is the phase when the oral law began historically. Let's try to, to focus on that. It's a, it's a critical thing to understand. There's endless discussion here that needs to be filled in. But let's try to establish the idea and feel together at least one application. You know, we can divide Jewish history into two phases broadly. We can divide Jewish history into the phase from the creation of the world, throughout the formation of the Jewish people, up to the phase of the men of the great assembly, Anshei Knesset Hagdola. The men of the great assembly, Anshei Knesset Hagdola, these were the men of the time of the very early, very, very early Tanaitic period. In fact, before that, the last of the prophets were parts of that, parts of that generation. They, were the, they included the last three prophets in Jewish history, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The last three prophets were, were members of that convocation. And they, they were the assembly of sages who enacted a number of watershed enactments or laws or changes to the whole process of Jewish, Jewish life and, and, and practice. Specifically, and that's what we need to focus on here, Specifically, they ended the generation of prophecy. Very explicitly, they ended the generation of prophecy. They also sealed the Tanakh. They sealed scripture. Right? They closed the, the canon, as it were. From that, from that time on, the last of the prophetic writings, revealed writings, right, would be the last of the prophetic books. And from then on, explicitly, nothing more would be added to, to scripture. They also ended prophecy. They also ended the desire for idolatry. They exorcised, as it were, from the human soul the desire to worship idols. That, this all needs understanding. They did many other things. They instituted blessings. All of these are connected. We won't have time to go through all of them. They instituted blessings. Brochus, right? We make blessings. Jews make blessings on everything. Everything. You're supposed to make a hundred blessings a day. At least a hundred blessings a day. It's hinted at in a verse, in a puzzle. We have a siddur full of blessings. Right? You wake up in the morning, you've got a whole list of them. Dozens of blessings for your shoes, your belt, your hat, your, your standing up, waking up, being untied, yeah, seeing. Every day you have a blessing on all, you don't have a blessing on hearing. Why not? Why do you wake up every morning, make a blessing on Pokech, if Rimi opens my eyes? Why don't you say on being able to hear? No, it's because you hear while you're sleeping. You hear while you're sleeping. You make rochas on every, the facet of newness. Yeah? Baruch Hashem Yoim Yoim. Bless, Hashem is blessed day to day. Every day is a new bracha, new blessing. Wake up in the morning, we make blessings. The city is full of blessings. You, you name it, it has a blessing, right? Waking up in the morning, going to sleep at night, being born, the opposite end. Yeah, you, any, any aspect of Jewish life, we have blessings. Prayer, even, our prayers are, are phrased as blessings. Shmon Esra has 18 or 19 blessings. They instituted the blessings. Until that time, they were not brothers. You know that? Until that time, Jews did not have a city full of blessings. The only blessings that existed, the only brothers that existed before that time were, which ones? No. Benching after bread, yeah, grace after meals, because it says in the Torah, you have to bless after bread. That's a Torah mitzvah, Jews did that. And one other one, learning Torah, the blessing you make on the learning of Torah, which women have to make as well. Right? We make it in the morning when we wake up, also, is the blessing you make on learning Torah. Those are, those are Torah-mandated blessings. But all the rest they did not exist before. They made, they, they, they made up all the, 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 the liturgy, if you like, right? Of the Jewish Nusach, the liturgy of our, of all our priests. So they were, it was a massive change in Jewish life. And they were the ones who affected this change. 
And none of fascinating change happened at that time. Let's see if we can try and focus on that and extract also not only the fascination of its meaning, but also practical, practical application. And that is that they changed the nature. Listen carefully to this. They changed the nature of the human understanding or appreciation of words to the extent that words became possible or there was a new dimension put in or a special intense pleasure putting in to speaking words that are meaningless. The concept that we call dvarim betalim, dvarim betalim, words that are bat, batel means superfluous, completely superfluous, meaningless, came into their own dimension then. At the same time as the written law transitioned into the oral law, which is all human speech, as it were, transmitting a hidden message. What is this? What, what, why is it that we love speaking nonsense? Let's put it plainly. Why is it that we enjoy talking nonsense? People talk a lot of nonsense, in case you haven't noticed. Right? A, lot of the, a lot of the world is full. Overfull, I would say. With spewed out words. Right? The best of which are, are wasted. Most of which are, are lies. But what is this communication, this... this, this extreme expenditure of words that, that very often aren't meant when they said, this doesn't matter too much because the listener knows that it's not meant anyway, so they don't take it seriously in the first place. But the world is permeated right, with a set of media projections of, of communication that are so extensive that they are so cheap. Right? What is this? Where does it come from? You have to remember here that words are essence. Words are essence. Our deep sources regard words as seed. You don't waste seed. The Zohar says that, that, again, it's hard to go into detail here, but wasting words that are precious is like wasting seed, even seed, seed from within the human body. Torah words. Teaching a student, for example, is not suitable, for example. is regarded as that, as a spilling of inner energy. If there's anything you waste, you don't waste seed. You have a seed to plant that has infinite potential. A seed, one seed, has the potential to produce a tree with its own seeds that can produce trees which can produce seeds. You're talking about infinity. You hold one seed in your hand. You're talking about a visible representation of infinity, of pure potential. The only thing the seed doesn't have inside is a tree. If you cut the seed open, you won't see a small tree. All you have here is compressed potential of trees upon tree. You don't waste that. I once heard a great man say that the way we deal with our lives, you don't just waste words. That we, what we do with our lives is we take seed, we take that which should be a seed, and instead of treating it as it's obviously meant to be treated because it is seed, and planting it so you produce, the way he put it was, if you have an egg, if you have an egg, there's two things you can do with an egg. One is you can put it under a chicken, and then you'll get a chicken. And if you get a chicken, you'll get lots of eggs. And if you put those under chickens, you can be in chickens and eggs for the rest of your life. You can multiply beyond all imagination. Or you can take the egg and make an omelette and eat it. <laughs> handling it correctly will give you more omelettes than you could ever dream of. But handling it wrongly, and that's how we treat our lives. The way we treat the infinite potential of our lives is instead of nurturing every moment of life as a seed that produces an infinity, we eat it as soon as we have it. He actually gave a graphic description. I mean, it's a bit shocking, but he said that he said, walking down the street, we're looking at people, you should visualize the, what, 
The reality is you, what you're doing, people who take in their lives and spending them in the frivolous activities of taking each day and, 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 and throwing it away instead of translating it into its infinite potential is like watching people ripping pieces out of themselves, right? eating themselves, yet dealing with themselves as omelette instead of egg. That's what it is. What should come out of a day when the day dies is infinity. When you go to sleep at night and another day is gone, which will never come again. Never come again. What would a dying person do for one more day? Anything. And you took it and you, you killed it. Killing time. You killed the day. If you go to sleep at night knowing that another day died, that nothing was extracted from that day, it's a disaster. You should feel the cold hand of death. If you go to sleep at night knowing that the day was taken and elevated and translated into infinity, you translated that day into its infinite equivalent, which is Torah and Mitzvahs. The only thing that lives on is the spiritual content. Now, if you have a relationship, you spent a day that you did not develop the relationship. So another day of the relationship died. But if you spent a day in which you developed the relationship, this is a day of intense giving, of more selfless giving than yesterday, right? of a more intense oneness in this relationship. So what remains is that, that the, the spiritual achievement there remains. The day is the cost, and the goods that are bought is the result of the day. So you take a day of human potential, right, which could be burned into nothingness, or could be translated into its literally infinite potential. A day of unneeded vacation. Needed vacation is a mitzvah, because it's a, it's a, it's a charging of energy, so that there's more achievement further, which is needed. But a day of vacation, an hour of sleep that's not needed. An hour of sleep is an hour of suicide. Because what would a dying person give for one more hour of consciousness? Anything. And you just threw it away? This whole discussion began, came into its specific format, if you like, at the time when the men of the Great Assembly transitioned the Jewish people from the process of the written law, in which things are revealed, into the process of the oral law, where things have to be heard. Let's try and see if we can, let's try and understand this. Wonderful subject, also frightening subject. Let's see if we can understand. And there are many problems here. One of the problems is, just to fill it out a bit more deeply, one of the problems is, why do we enjoy doing that? Isn't that paradoxical? Why do we enjoy wasting time? If you tell me we enjoy it because there's pleasurable things you're doing while you're wasting time, no, that's one thing. But why do we enjoy specifically wasting the time? Why do we enjoy conversations that are meaningless? Why don't we feel frustrated? Why is that when we sit down together, we have a conversation, right? If the conversation goes nowhere, specifically if it goes nowhere, we're just talking. Why is there special pleasure in that? Why is there special pleasure in playing games that do nothing but while away the time? That's perverted. It's perverse. To take time that you spend doing nothing, and people... The truth is, it is delicious. And that needs intense explanation. You sit down for a couple of hours with friends, and what you do during those few hours is you achieve conclusions. You come to some practical output. You come to a plan that you've made that you're going to do, go and do great things. You should walk away feeling tremendous. But how do you sit with friends for two or three hours in which nothing comes out at all, and this experience is relished? People go out for a meal. Yeah, they sit together. They get together, and they talk for two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. And by the time they get to end the conversation, they couldn't possibly remember how they got to that subject from the one they started with, because nothing meant... First of all, the issues weren't connected. Somebody said something, and that reminded somebody of something else, so they said that, and then... And the whole sequence of beginning is completely and utterly meaningless. Nothing was decided, nothing was learned, but except complete trivialities or things that are downright forbidden. And it's a delicious experience. 
who in his right mind right, would enjoy and it's a bit humiliating to say this but men do it much worse than women men do it, you might think that it's a woman's field talk, the Gemara says that so you might think that but the truth is men do it much worse than women when it comes to saying things that mean nothing at all when you hear women talking listen to women talking inconsequential talk you'll find a a lot of useful information is being transmitted (laughs) but when men talk nonsense when men talk nonsense it's complete utter nonsense men can get together men in the, in, this, in the Western secular mode, men can get together and talk about sports statistics. Sports statistics. Endlessly. Endlessly. At the end of that discussion, there's absolutely no difference at all. Nothing at all. When women get together, do women, would women ever get together and talk about how many goals somebody scored in 19... <laughs> She'd have to be raving. It's a psychological problem to do that. <laughs> but men can spend hour after hour after hour talking about which makes no difference to anybody. No. But the mystery is not that they do it, but that it's so pleasurable. They're delicious. You talk about it. It needs an explanation. needs an explanation. Why do people enjoy games that are specifically meaningless? If the game has a skill, or you're meeting people, or you're learning something, that's one issue. But a game where people get around and sit around and they do something that is completely... They go round and round and round and backwards and forwards and up and down. This is governed by luck in the first place. No skill at all. By the throw of a dice. So the dice is thrown and then this thing goes round and backwards and forwards and nothing happens at all. There's no skill, there's no intellect, there's nothing. And it's a delicious experience. There has to be an aberration. There has to be... But we do it and we enjoy it. What is the meaning of this? Let's see if we can... Let's see if we can advance... uh, a little understanding of this. The truth is that there's another paradox here, and that is that our sources indicate very strangely that, that talking does not give pleasure. The source, and we don't experience that. We experience the fact that talking and talking nonsense, just talking, does give pleasure, right? The classic example is, classic illustration of this is that our halakhic sources say that um, the punishment, the punishment for and horror, Right? One of the forbidden, one of the problems with speech, and we discussed it here, I think, before, is saying things that are classed as Lashonara. Lashonara means saying things that are denigrating and negative about someone else which are true. We're talking about which are true. Right? Saying lies is another problem. But one of the most severe problems, right, intensely problematic areas, halakhically, is saying things that are true, true speech, which is negative. So there, the, there the, the sources say that the reason the punishment for that area is worse than others, one of the reasons that the punishment here is worse for this, is because when a person does other sins, when sins are done, yeah, particularly the lower ones, where the body's involved, then in the next world, when a person is called to account for having done those things, you will have some version of an excuse. You'll say, look Hashem, you gave me urges. You gave me an a, um, attachment to these things, right? A bodily response a sensuous connection, so that these things appealed to me. So it was hard for me, there was a challenge here. But in speech you can't say that, because there's no pleasure in the tongue. When you say something bad about somebody else, right? when you talk, there's no pleasure in that. And the problem is, 
There's tremendous pleasure in that. What do these sources mean? I mean, let's be honest, right? Even talking things that are nonsense, let alone something. What does that mean? Why did that change? Why is it like that? Again, I'm not sure I've convinced you. But you need to, we need to focus on this and understand that one of the major problems with the world today is words that are, that are at best meaningless. Let's not even get into the discussion of words that are false and words that are harmful. Just complete empty talk to the extent that, that words are almost worthless. That's a spilling of the most intensely deep seed. You see, in a, broader, in a broader sense, words are only one version. You have to understand carefully here that when the Torah talks about Devarim Betalim, words that are wasted, you have to realize again the word Devarim in Hebrew means words that are wasted, but it also means anything that is wasted. A day gone by wasted is just as much Devarim Betalim, the spitting out, the spewing out of seed, right? That, could, that that day could have become. Only we call it words because words are the most essential, as we've been studying here many times. The words are the most essential illustration of an abstract root potential brought into expression. They're the most potent and pure expression of that. But the, the language of dibur, the Hebrew word dabar, doesn't literally mean speaking. Speech is only its clear manifestation. Dabar in Hebrew means any mode of conduct that takes plan and puts it into action. Right? Like you have Yad Be'er Amim Tachtenu. Yad Be'er, that verb in Hebrew means to manifest control over another entity. It means to take a plan and a control and bring it into expression. That's why Dibu, we've talked many times, that the voice is produced in the neck, which is the interconnected, the place of connection between the higher world of the head and the lower world of bodily expression. So Dibu is anything that comes from the head into dance, is speech too. Musical expression is also speaking. Can be more eloquent sometimes than words. Motions of the body, just expressions of the face, they're all modes of speaking. You think writing is not a speech? You can sometimes be much clearer with a with 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 gesture than you can with words. These are all speakings. So when we talk about speaking that is wasted, Dvorim Batani, we don't only mean that you said words that are meaningless, when you do the gesture that was meaningless, it's also a waste of potential energy. You spent an hour doing something that was going nowhere. This is all the same... Just to add one dimension before we try to see it through. The Gaon of Vilna says something really frightening. The Gaon says, this he writes in a letter. Gaon of Vilna writes this in a letter to his family when he was leaving for Israel. He left for Israel. Well. He wrote a letter to his wife and family. Although he never completed that journey. He wrote a letter in which he warned them. He warns them about certain, about certain things. He gives certain instructions. And a state, he makes a statement there in which he says that the punishment for speaking words that are meaningless is called kaf ha-kela. Kaf ha-kela in Hebrew is a hard thing to translate, but it means the most accurate English translation would be the cup of the slingshot. You know, the, you know the, in, in a, uh, a catapult or a slingshot, there's the place where the, re, the, the receptacle part where the projectile is, is housed, the kaf ha-kela. Right? The, the, the Gaon says that the punishment for, for words that are unnecessary, dvorim batalim, is to be is called this dimension of kafakela. And the meaning is that in the next world there's a dimension of pain, retribution or, or suffering as it were, pain for pain for the for the which is the consequence of the negatively spent parts of one's life, the, the, those things that, that have been done that are that are negative or harmful. The, the the pain of those experiences experienced in the next world, yeah it's not punishment, it's simply the result of those actions. 
is a dimension of, of human pain, of spiritual pain, which is the consequence of all the spiritually damage-causing actions that are done in the world. But for speaking words that are meaningless, there's a special dimension of that, and it's called the cup of the slingshot. What it means is, the sensation, try and put this across as best we can, the words are very clumsy here, but the way it's expressed is something like this. When, when a person behaves in a, in, a, in, a, in a spiritually damaging, brutally, spiritually brutally damaging fashion, right, and sins are perpetrated, the general category of suffering in the world after this we call Gehenon. Right? The English words are completely useless because they conjure up, you know, completely non-Jewish graphic images. And therefore we won't even use the word. But this dimension of suffering, the word Gehenon in Hebrew literally means a place of non-existence, of nothing. Hinnom means the place of nothing. Which means that the best way to find words to describe that, I mean, all completely the exercise of imagination for us, we can't really picture it, is that what the soul experiences in that dimension is the, is the feeling of non-existence. It's the feeling of non- but it's not non-existence. That wouldn't be painful at all. If you're not there, you don't, you don't suffer. The problem is being there to feel that you're not there. Would be something like having lost a limb. That, it's part of you, but it's not there. Can you imagine the sensation? And they're looking for another limb which isn't there either and then try to do with some other limb which also isn't there. But you're around to feel the lack of the parts. You see, the parts of the soul are constructed by the spiritual activities of a lifetime. And when those things are damaged, so then the consciousness is still there, but there's nothing, nothing attached. But after all, our concept of the world, see the logic of this, our concept of the world to come is simply what you've built of yourself. So if you haven't built anything of yourself, especially if you've damaged it, yeah, what you are, so your experience of the next world is, is the fact that you should have been, but you're not. Now, that's described as the most intense pain that a human being <coughs> could feel. Now, we've got enough, enough frightening things to talk about this evening without going into more detail about that, but that's the general picture we have of the dimension of, of pain that the soul goes through as a corrective, corrective phase in the next world. But for speaking words, or more broadly, doing actions that are purposeless, that are a waste of, of life time, the, the punishment, as it were, the consequence, the pain, has a separate description. And it's not the description of a sensation of non-existence. It's the description of an experience of being flung by a slingshot with great velocity, but just at the point of arrival, being flung again. Imagine the sensation of going on a journey to a longed-for destination, a desperately needed destination. And as the point of destination finally arrives, it becomes the beginning for another journey of long, towards long-for destination. But, but as that destination, but we're not talking about every moment, right? if you can use the word moment in that dimension beyond time, every moment of that dimension is a sensation of moving powerfully towards what is needed to be met, and yet the same experience is only leading to a further projection to another hopeless... You know, that's what it means, the experience of being slung, or flung in the sling. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you really want to be completely, permanently terrified, might as well, let's, let's go all the way. Let's go all the way. The God says that for every word, for every word, for every word that a person says that's unnecessary, he has to be flung from one end of the world to the other in this experience of Kafa Kala. That, why? Why is, that so, why is it so immensely negative spiritually? Why? 
I mean, just to get a slight beginning of a handle on this before we go into more depth. All our concepts of punishment or hurt or pain are always what we call midakaneged mida, right? It's measure for measure. It's nothing other than, it isn't only a retribution measure for measure, it's the product of the action itself. It couldn't be any different. It's not, it is the result of the thing. It's not even the result of the thing. It is the thing itself. What are words? What are words that are meaningless? Aren't they a journey towards a place that, that isn't? Again, words we said, right? Words, or in the broader context, any life activity is what? It's a journey towards a meaningful endpoint, isn't it? What is this life, if not a movement towards a massively all-encompassing meaningful endpoint? You know the word, again, you can't say this in other languages, but the word we use for this world is Eretz. You know what Eretz means in Hebrew? Running towards. And you know what use we, word we use for the next world in Hebrew? Shamayim. You see, we've been so perverted in our hearing, we think that Eretz and Shamayim means heaven and earth. So this is called earth, and one day you get to heaven. But that's not... that. that Eretz means running towards. The concept of, of an earthly existence, yeah, in, Hebrew, in English you say earth. In Hebrew, you, you, the word you use means an existence of running towards a destination. That's what life means, a moving, inexorable process of moving towards. And what is our word for the next world? Shamaim. You know what Shamaim means in Hebrew? Shamim. Destination. Sham in Hebrew means there. Kola shamim kulam. Shamaim means all the, all the composite endpoints that could ever be conceived is what the running towards leads to. I mean, the words say what it means. They say what they mean. What's the difference if you're on earth or in heaven? If it's, uh, you know, it's earth or it's clouds. I mean, with or without a harp. That's not the concept. The concept is Eretz means Al-Shem Haritza, running towards. And the next word we call Shamaim, Kola Shamim, the word Sham in Hebrew, which is the root of the word Shamaim. Sham always means, it always means a designation of maximally meaningful tachlis or endpoint. The word Sham in Hebrew, which means there, also means a name. In Hebrew, the word Shame is exactly the same word. Shame, a name, is a designation of essence. An accurate name, a Hebrew name, a real name. A name which says the thing, like we've been saying all evening. So the word sham and the word shame are the same thing. What is the essence of the human being? The neshama, right? The soul. Sham in Hebrew also means complete and utter destruction. But shmama means, and that's because the Hebrew words, like we've said many times, they contain both opposite polarities in there. Yeah? If the same word means pure essence, it also means complete lack of essence. That's called shmama. But there's no, there's no journey possible, never mind destination. And therefore, if life is this process of running towards destination, so what is a life spent getting no place? Isn't it the slingshot throwing from one place to another that turns out not to be destination? Isn't it the same? What, what would be the consequence of a life that was running and running and running to no place? The consequence is the sensation of a being projected from one yeah, from departure to destination which turns out to be nothing more than another projection. to some other illusory destination. How did this happen? Let's see if we can spend a few minutes trying to work it out. Timon says this, right? Let's get this clear. There was a generation in history when the problem was the, the, this generation, this watershed generation, when the written law ended, prophecy ended, 
The written law and prophecy are synonymous. Incidentally, miracles ended as well. Revealed miracles of the class that fall into scriptural miracles. The Rambam says that a miracle can never take place unless a prophet is present. A condition for the operation of a miracle of a nace in the world is that a prophet must be present. Involved, the medium of the nace. There's another class of miracles which are manipulations of, <coughs> of the natural world. The Talmud is full of those and that requires further discussion. What is the difference between that class of miracles and the previous class? That's a wonderful subject in its own right. But the, the scriptural miracles that we have, the splitting of the sea and reviving of the dead, like we have in the Torah this week, is all only where a prophet is, yeah, who revived the child? In this week's Parsha? You say Haftarah? Look it up. There's a Navi involved. Right? There has to be a prophet involved. After that, miracles end, prophecy ends, many, many changes happen. The process was like this. The men of the Great Assembly got to a point. Now, these are the eyes of the Jewish people. This is the Sanhedrin that, that, that heads the Jewish people that are responsible for its, for its direction. They're responsible for its projection into the future, into, into what history will become. Mordechai was a member of the Sanhedrin. Ezra was a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, Ezra was around when this period took place, Ezra was a member of that great convocation of the, of the sages at the very end of the prophetic phase. And it was his, it was his phase of Anshayk Desus Agdelu who sealed scripture and ended prophecy. In fact, the Mortanis, we have a tradition that Ezra died on the day that the founder of Christianity was born. The founder of Christianity was born huh, on the same date as Ezra's death. What's the concept? Ezra led the men of the Great Assembly in sealing scripture. But Tanakh, the canon is ended. No more testaments. It's closed here, and no more prophetic revelation. Because they knew that what was coming in the phase of darkness would be claims to add on to scripture, add to the canon, and claims of prophecy. So they sealed it clearly so that we know that that's not, that's not part. Not part of our tradition. Now listen to the description that the Gemara says. The Gemara says like this. There was a phase of history that they entered when they saw that the desire for idolatry was overwhelmingly strong. You know, one of the, one of the features of our existence today is that with all our failings and with all our faults, we don't have a craving to bow down to shapes carved in... I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, generally speaking, right, no matter how far people have devolved, generally speaking, we don't find an irresistible craving. We do find lots of irresistible cravings, or, or very hard to resist urges and lusts and cravings. But one of those lusts is not the incredibly, almost, almost uncontrollable desire to worship idols. What idols mean needs lots of discussion, and we have done that before. But be that as it may, whatever it is, right, we don't have that today. And the truth is, there was an overwhelming desire for that before. It was so powerful the desire to project oneself beyond oneself in an act of, in an act of, of, of obeisance and of, of, of bonding with something transcendent, right? a false object, false focus of transcendence, that the men of the Great Assembly decided that it was time to end it. And they exorcised from the human spirit the craving for idolatry. And they were of that greatness. They had the power to do that, and they did it. Of course, they took away from the human race... Right? its greatest potential credit, 
Because worshipping Hashem, connection, connection with Hashem, with God, obviously is the flip side, is the positive side of this idolatrous, that's exactly, yeah, this is Zeke Negedze, that's what it is, this balances against that. And therefore they took away the most powerfully negative element in the human constitution, which is, of course, where you get your maximum reward when you pull in the opposite pole. But they said, the expression was, take it away and take away its reward. Yet take away its risk and take away its reward. In order to have the benefit, yet you have to undertake the risk. And they made the calculation that the risk of an idolatrous craving was not worth the benefit. Because too many people were falling. The, human, the strength of the human soul to resist that, that, that incredible urge to transcend in the wrong direction was, was not worth, yeah, in order to be able to overcome it, the credit you get from overcoming it and pulling in the right direction was not worth the risk of falling and failing. And they made that incredible decision to deny human beings from that time on the potential and the ability, the opportunity to overcome those things, to move in the right direction. Someone says that the, the procedure went like this. You have to understand the craving. The Gemara says that Ravashi, right, who was the editor of the Talmud, Ravashi lived long after this. Ravashi was the last of the generation of the Amoroi. We're talking about uh, 1600 years ago. Ravashi lived approximately in the year 400. That is a number of centuries after the phase we're talking about now. Ravashi once entered the yeshiva to give a lecture, to give a shir. And he wanted to give a shir about Menashe, the great king Menashe, who was in, in many centuries before him, was a king of the Jewish people, who descended into, into idolatrous practices and leadership. So he began his discussion of Menashe with a very disparaging remark. He said, Niftach b'chavroi, which means it's hard to translate accurately, but it's a disparaging way of saying, let's talk about our, our friends, maybe in English you'd say about our buddies. It's a disparaging way of relating to the king Menashe. Why? Why did he speak in a slighting and disparaging fashion? Because Menashe had descended into idolatry, and there's only one thing on earth that you're allowed to mock, and be in, uh, mockingly disparaging. Of the, and that is idolatry. To be mocking, what we call leitzonus, right? To make to clown and to be mocking is extremely negative human characteristic, because what it does is it reduces, it makes a travesty or a mockery of the dignity and greatness of the human being, and therefore it's a very very negative trait is to engage in mockery, right? One one frivolous mocking remark can destroy hundreds and hundreds of lectures of of sensitive spiritual depth. And therefore, to mock is not appropriate. But there's one thing you can mock, and that is idolatry, because idolatry is the essential mockery of the truth. And that's what it does. It's a parody. Yes, it's as close as you can be, but in the wrong direction. And the, the, the correct weaponry, the correct uh, ammunition against that is... And therefore, he did it. He did it. He came into the base marriage, and instead of speaking in respectful fashion, he said, let's talk about... You want to talk about Manasha? Let's talk about our buddies. That night he had a dream. And in his dream, the king Manasha came to him. And he said to him, Who are you calling your friend? I'm not your friend, I'm not your father's friend. And then Manasha proceeded to ask him a halachic question. The morale goes through this. It's a wonderful discussion. I can't go into the details now. But Manasha in his dream asked Ravashi, the great sage of the Jewish people, the leader of his, the halachic great giant of his generation, the editor of the Talmud that we have today, no less. He asked him a seemingly simple halachic question. Ravashi couldn't answer very interesting question. You look it up yourself. And then Manasha gave him the answer. 
Sravashi turned to Menashe in his dream and he said, if you're so great, he was struck to see that this, this man whom he had spoken disparagingly because he descended into idolatry, he said, if you're that great that you know more Torah than I do, so how did you, how did you descend into idolatry? And Menashe said to him, you don't understand, in our generation, there was such a craving for it, it was almost irresistible. Had you lived in our generation, we at least, with the, the language of the Gomorrahs, we at least walked in a dignified fashion towards this craving. Had you been there, you would have picked up your skirt, your, 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 your gown, in order to run. You would have had no control at all had you lived at our level, in our generation. And then he realized that Menashe had sunk to that level as the result of a craving that was beyond his understanding. The Gemara says the next day he opened the discussion with the words, Niftach berav revoy, let's talk about our teachers. There was a, a watershed shift here in human consciousness in this area. So how did it happen? So the Sanhedrin got together and they called up the spirit of idolatry. That means you have to understand these words not to take them in the wrong... These words are literal. It's not uh, metaphors. But you have to understand what's being said here. I picture it with the human eyes, with the flesh, eyes of flesh. They called up the human desire from all of mankind... This, this, this illicit and incredibly powerful desire to worship idols. And the Gemara says it came flaming out of the Kurdish Kadoshim. It came flaming out of the Holy of Holies in the Temple. That's where it resides. What's the desire for idolatry residing in the spiritual center of the world? But you realize it doesn't take much understanding to realize, isn't it the same desire that wants to connect in the right direction? Misapplied. Isn't it the center of human consciousness that wants to transcend to the genuine source? But, but the faculty being used in the wrong direction. So it came flaming out like a, like a fiery lion, and they killed it. They killed it, they used their spiritual methods, their techniques, they killed it. Which means that from that moment on, we no longer have this craving. Right? That inner center of our being, that holy of holies as it were, that inner sanctum of the temple that is each Jewish neshama, each human neshama, is now devoid of that desire to transcend in that fashion. The rest of the Gemara is worth hearing because it's, you see its relevance. The Sanhedrin, being as great as they were, they thought that this is a propitious time, this is an auspicious time, to go further. That means once, it's in Hebrew, the expression is it was an eight ratzon, an eight ratzon. That means a time of, how do you say, when Hashem is granting your requests, when you go and ask for a precious request, and you see that the giver grants it, if you have any sense, you ask for the next request, once the mood is right, but what you call in England, a, a, a good wicket. Right? They saw they were on a good wicket, so they thought, this is the time to ask for what we need. So they decided to exorcise, they decided to exorcise, men's illicit desire for women. Imagine if the world were rid of that thing. Imagine, imagine if there was no, Imagine there was none of that. Imagine the purity and greatness that the world would, would reach if people didn't have this tremendous lust. So they did that. And the Gemara says that three days later there were no fresh eggs in Israel. Because the chickens weren't producing. Rashi actually says, I don't know, none of you are farmers probably. But there's a technical problem here, and that is that the chickens aren't producing eggs. With, that means there should at least have been the eggs that were already within the bodies of the chickens. Eggs take a long time to form within the body of a chicken. Right? They, don't, they don't come out immediately. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a ripening process where they form, and some days later they laid. 
So surely the eggs that were already within the chickens that had already been fertilized should have been laid. So Moses says, no, because the chickens weren't hot. Their body temperatures had dropped. They were too cool. The process of maturation didn't even continue. That means, you understand, that the heat of the biological world had cooled. So they realized, the Mervyn Shake this is like, that they're going to continue, it's like the world not be populated anymore. So then they decided to bring it back, but they decided they could possibly bring it back and allow the natural urge in this field to operate, but only have an urge, the man should have an urge only for his wife. He should be attracted only to his wife. But what they would do is what they would exercise that part of, the natural, of this natural area for w- other than one spouse. Imagine the world, what the world would look like. And they got a message from Shemaim. The message came down from the higher world. Min Shemaya, the, the message was, Min Shemaya lo yahavi palga. From heaven they don't give halves. You don't get half. You either have it or you don't. You can't slice it like that. You, can't, you either have it or you don't. Either a man feels this or he doesn't. You can't make him feel this for someone and not for someone else. And therefore, they brought it back. They had to. Only they managed, says the Gemara, to bring it back blind. They managed to bring this an expression. What it means is that from that time on, what they managed to engineer was that from that time on, a person would no longer have a desire for his mother or sister. There's no natural... It can be, it can be cultivated. It can be cultivated. A lot of strange things can and are cultivated. But there's no natural desire, no matter how attractive one's mother or sister, close relatives may be, is not, and it's a remarkable thing, actually. It's a remarkable thing, you think about that. It doesn't make a remarkable thing. But there's no natural desire. They managed to achieve that. At least that. Let's understand this. <coughs> and what we need to add is, that as, at the same time, listen, listen stay, stay well with me, at the same time that they closed Scripture and ended prophecy, was the same time when they ended the desire for idolatry. Idolatry, when the desire to transcend in that way went, prophecy was lost. Do you know why? Again, they didn't set out to exorcise prophecy. All they set out to do was to take away the lust and the craving and the desire to worship idols. When that happened, people no longer received prophecy. And do you know why? Because from heaven they don't give halves. (coughs) What is prophecy? Prophecy is being able to hear something from another world. What is idolatry? Speaking to that world. There's a two-way street here, two-way channel. <coughs> the center of consciousness, <coughs> again, say with me, the anatomy is essential, the spiritual anatomy. The center of consciousness, which is the essence of what you are, at its deepest level wants to connect with more than what you are. Your genuine source that transcends you. That takes two forms. Right? On the one side you have connection with Hashem, the desire to be annulled in His being, as it were, and the trafe or invalid or unconscious side of that is idolatrous connection, without going into what exactly the point of distinction is, for now. But the other side of that same issue is prophecy. Prophecy means that I have a receiver. It means that at the root of my consciousness I have an ability to transcend. At one and the same time it allows me to lift myself out of myself and connect with Hashem, and that's the same thing as being a prophet. What is a Navi? The word Nivu'ah in Hebrew means a welling up from a hidden depth. Niv Sfasaim, Niv Sfataim, Niv in Hebrew means Tenuvah. Right? Tenuvah means to well, Tenuvah in Hebrew means produce that grows from the ground. The seed is hidden under the ground and it grows up. Niv, Novea in Hebrew, right? 
that root of nav, niv, means to, nevi'ah, in that sense, spelt like that, means a welling up of an underground spring. Yeah? So prophecy is the function of the root of consciousness when, it's, when, it, when it transcends. Idolatry is the misuse of that thing. Which means that when they took away the desire for idolatry, they stopped people. Nobody could become a prophet from then on. But they, co- they closed the, the door on prophecy. Because they are two faculties of the same organ. Just like if a person has a desire for women, or that area of male-female contact, if it's taken away, it all goes. If it's there, it all applies. Right? With the exception that we mentioned before. The analogy would be if you take an organ out of the body then you lose all the functions of that organ. You can't take an organ. If you take the liver out of the body, you can't expect some of the functions of the liver to remain. You can't do that. If you excise that part of the body, are we together? Then whatever its functions, whether they, if an organ is ill, it happens in medicine all the time, when an organ is sick, it must be removed. You lose all the good functions of the organ too. There's just no way, there's no other way to cut it. When an organ is diseased, it has to be surgically removed. The person might need dialysis, they might need it, but you can't, when they took away the desire to serve idols, people no longer be prophets. Now, let's take one more step. I mean, there's so much to think about here. Just, I don't want to keep you late, but just to think it through. Why did they institute blessings? Can you see the connection here? Why did they make up blessings? Do you know what a bracha is? Again, we can't go into detail. Just in one nutshell. Do you know what a blessing is? A bracha means identifying the source. Again, please don't make the error the, the less than beginner's error of thinking that a blessing means that you bless God. You bless Hashem. Baruch Atah Hashem doesn't mean you bless Him. Yeah, Baruch Atah Hashem means you Hashem are the source of blessing. I'm doing the exercise of pointing out to myself the source of this thing. Yeah, Baruch Atah means, Nebuchadnezzar explains very clearly, you Hashem are the source. When you take an apple and you say, Baruch Atah Hashem, when you say that, what you're saying is, Hashem, you are the source of this apple. You're the source of this. You create the tree from which this fruit comes. You identify the source. There's much more than identification. There's a giving of thanks. And there's, but there's an identification of source. When you live in a prophetic world, you don't have to identify a source. It speaks itself. Every object in the world which is a davar, speaks its wo- davar word. What could be more pointless than when someone speaks to you, say, you are speaking to me. Now, or repeating what they say. When they speak, you listen. When an apple lives in the world as a word of Hashem, you don't, it's, you don't have to remind yourself that it's the word of Hashem. It glows, it's incandescent with its meaning, it speaks its word. The world is a conversation. But when the world goes dark and there's no prophecy anymore, then an apple looks like an apple. That's the problem. It doesn't look like the word of Hashem anymore. It doesn't show you the creative... And therefore, the duty is to take an apple and now you have to supply the meaning. You have to say, Hashem, I identify you as the source of this apple. And that's why we make blessings on everything. Because we don't see anything. We don't see the source of anything in it. Not fruits and not vegetables and not, not, not nothing. Not bread, nothing. So therefore, when we take those things in the world, in order not to be phased and fooled, not by the alma, the shikra, the hiddenness of the world, we, make an, we identify the source. We say, Hashem, you are the source of this apple. But when, a pro- when prophets walked the earth, you know, when prophets walked the earth, it wasn't only that prophets had prophecy. When prophets walked the earth, the whole Jewish people were at a level of seeing things. They weren't all prophets, but the world was luminescent with its meaning. So you didn't have to identify the source. But when the world went dark and prophecy no longer was, and the world looks, you don't see anything. So then we have to put that, can you see the same 
let's take the final step. When they took out of the human mind that organ, as it were, that central organ, that focus, that root of consciousness, which is the antenna, if you like, or the receiver, the transmitter receiver, that is the, the, where prophecy and idolatry, as it were, that is are vested, the question is what remains in its place. Please, so here we come to the last element here. Hopefully we'll complete the circle. I mean, we're making a very childlike graphic description here, but for, for purposes of studying the subject, this is the way to do it. When you, take an, when you take out that part of the mind, the question is, what is left? When you take an organ out of the body, let's make an analogy, you take an organ out of the body, and you take all the functions of that organ, what's left in its place? An empty space. Just emptiness. The focus of the human mind, its deepest and most precious core, its most elevated point of where it's centered, is the desire to transcend and extend oneself and connect with the source. Its wrong manifestation is connect with the wrong source. Its right manifestation is connect with the correct source and give oneself up to that and make a personal intimate connection. The two-way street is that on the one side and prophecy on the other side. Do you know what that incredible longing looks like when its, when its organ has been taken away? An incredible longing for nothing. For words that instead of making connections are words that just don't go anywhere. Let's understand this. When the ultimate root of who you are is a place that is just empty, so the place where you come to the feeling of your most intense identity with your own self is where you're doing something that is entirely self-contained, that isn't subservient or doesn't go anyplace else. <coughs> Why is that? The highest point of the human being is that which connects with the world after this, which is the highest phase of existence. What is the nature of the world to come? It's a place where you are with no place to go. It's a place, it's a point of destination. It's called Shamim, where all the... There's no, there's no, you couldn't go any place there, because if you did, you'd be going away. You've just come to. You've just arrived at a destination, not a point of departure. Any place you try to move there would be away from essence. Are, are we making some progress? The next world is a place where, when one is there, one has a sensation of having arrived, because that, that is destination. When you waste time, what you're doing is, but the, the best illustration is when you're playing a game, that is a waste of time. What you're doing is you're enjoying being someplace where there isn't any other place to go. Where this activity is justified within itself, not by something outside of itself. All life is a process where the end point which transcends the process justifies the process. When you spend half an hour building something, why are you doing that? Because the half an hour that you're working towards is justified by the end result of the product that you're building, surely. You undertake a course of study. Why are you doing that for months or years? It's justified by the degree or the knowledge or whatever you want at the end. But when you do activities that are justified in themselves, like a vacation, you don't go on a vacation... Right? To do something else, you go to be there. When you play a game. The whole point of the game is it doesn't go... Is this making sense? The whole point of the game is it doesn't go anyplace. The enjoyment of the game is the fact that this is a time out of time. This is not a striving towards something that justifies this process. This is its own justification. There's no, nothing more delicious than that. This is the arrival at end point. It has its reflection in marriage too, and it's... Again, we can't go into detail. But it's a sensation of of coming home, of arriving at the place of destination. Why on earth would you want to move? That's a going away.
I think I mentioned before the Hebrew word for a game. Again, you have to re- always go back to the words. The Hebrew word for a game is Shashua. Shashua. It's a word that's applied to a game. It's also applied to Hashem's God's activities. The Gemara says, what does he do with his time? He's Mishta Hashem Torah. He pla- plays. The Torah is called Shashuai. Your words, Hashem. You say, well, Shashuai. It's a word of delicious. That the Torah is to us, not a game in the fallen sense, but a delicious sensation of endpoint. You know what Shashua means, a game? The word, it's a very unusual Hebrew root. Because it's a duplicated root, Shashua. That's very unusual in Hebrew. It's a duplicated root, Shashua. Sha means to turn towards, right? did not turn towards. Sha in Hebrew means to turn towards. Sha sure, sha sha means turning towards the turning towards. That's what the word means. It means a self-justified, intrinsically meaningful activity. That's what a game is. And that's why when a game is so trivial or so meaningless that it doesn't go anywhere other than the experience itself, therein lies its delicious. And that's what wasting time is. When you talk nonsense and you sit and talk for hour after hour after hour when nothing happens in no place it's a sensation of ultimate vacation right? a, a, a sensation of ultimate being in a place that doesn't need to be justified by where it leads it is justified within itself and that amazingly is the result of the center of human consciousness that, it, that remains after meaning has been extracted after ultimate meaning the desire to transcend into a genuine source where all of, of that which I am is a striving to transcend and to reach my, my point of genuine contact with, with the reality. When you pluck that out, so then the sense of the striving that I have, the sense of, of identification with my root, is simply with me. It's me with me. Like the most sterile. That I am self-contained. Right? I'm all that I need. And this activity justifies itself. Anyway, what we studied this evening was the introduction to the concept of the problem of, of Dvorim Batalim, of wasting words in its most uh, narrow sense, but in its broader sense, of wasting life activity, of the seed potential of life. And for those who need it, let's be coarse enough and uh, crude enough to relate it to what the world's going through now can't believe that anyone needs it, but in case if there's a time in history where we can't afford to do things that are meaningless and walk around in circles if the events that we're going through, have been through and are going through, if they have to mean anything to us this is what they have to mean do they mean you have to make a radical change in your, in your mode? Everyone, everybody I meet asks me does it mean we should move to Israel? should we give up this and start something else? The answer is, yeah, in other words, are we, meet, are we re- reaching the apocalyptic, you know, playing out of the end point, end game? Is that where we're getting to? And if so, what's the implication? We should change what we're doing, shouldn't we? Surely. Up to now we've been wasting time. Now we should do that which is meaningful. The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not because this has made a change objectively, but because that's what we should have been doing already. You always, you have to regard every day as end game, Surely. Who knows if you'll be here tomorrow? Every day might be the last, no? Would you like to face the last moment of your life knowing that you were going to make a change sometime, but you know you put it off? 
political events have to be the stimulus for that? Surely if there is a message, the message has to be that simply a reminder of the fact that there is an end point, there is an end game, there's a destination. Whether the world goes through what appears to be, you know, a scatological, you know, awakening, or it doesn't, surely those events should only stimulate the thought of, you know, could I handle tomorrow being my last? Could I honestly and genuinely say that I wouldn't have made any changes? If tomorrow would be your last, and it would make you live today differently, you should definitely be living today differently right now. And if your tomorrow, last tomorrow comes in 20 years' time, or 120 years, that's just fine, isn't it? And therefore the answer is, should one make a change? Well, depends. If you're doing what's right already, and your life is centered and focused on Torah and mitzvahs, the maximal learning of Torah that you fit in, whether you fit it in, you fit everything else around it as you should, then you shouldn't make a change. What do these events mean? It imply any difference. But if there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be, then these events, the very least, the, the very least that the, the fearsome events and the chaotic and frightening events of recent history, the very least thing that that, that, that should, should suggest is that this is not the place to walk in a circle. This is not the place to take a vacation. This is not the place for playing games. The only justification for going to sleep <coughs> or taking a vacation or occasionally perhaps even playing a game or saying a few words that aren't deeply meaningful is only because it's needed so that the next phase can be energized. But days you can't afford to be spent, you can't afford to waste days that don't go anyplace. Surely that's a basic message that should be apparent when we begin. And therefore, <coughs> all that's needed is a, clar- a clarity, a clarification of whether one's life is being spent with maximal productivity. Is every word that's said a constructive word? Does it lead to what it should lead to? Every word, every activity, at least every day, not perhaps every week, is should be meaningfully spent. That it's contained, it's, it's, it's quota of work on the self, of refining the self, of Torah input, which is the source of all of it, and of correct activities. And that's why the sages say that the messianic age, there's one way to survive it, or its birth pangs, if you like. It's, Engage in Torah and the acts of kindness. There's nothing else. If there is to be any protection from the birth pangs that we may merit to see, then it has to be that the protective mechanism that will carry us through it is Torah and, and acts of kindness.